This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. The Big Interview, intriguing lives, remarkable careers, and gripping stories. I'm Sonal Rupani, alongside Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield. Jack Horner, he's known as the founding father of paleontologists. He is the most famous paleontologist of all time. And stop, not Ross Geller. He is more famous than Ross Geller. He is the most well-known paleontologist of all time. In fact, he? he was the inspiration for the character of Dr. Alan Grant in Jurassic Park. And he served as a consultant on all of the Jurassic Park movies as well. So Steven Spielberg sought him out to add a bit of gravitas. Yeah, exactly that. To what he was doing. And so I learned from him right from the beginning how he got into paleontology. Uh, his father was in the sand and gravel business and knew a little bit about geology, he said. So he was always interested in fossils. And at a young age, he was poking around the backyard and said he found his very first one at the age of four. In his backyard? Then, well, that's what he said. Come but he on. said it was like a clam fossil. I'm not talking about a dinosaur oh. fossil here. Oh, okay. um, just as a fossil. So he's interested already in fossils. Then a few years later, at, a, at the age of eight, he discovers his love of dinosaurs. And he didn't have to wait very long before his first find. About the time I was eight, I started getting interested in dinosaurs. I got a book. I started getting really interested in seeing if I could find some dinosaur fossils. And my father remembered he had owned a ranch about 50 miles from where our house was. And he remembered riding his horse across the prairie and seeing some big bones sticking out of a hillside. Uh, when he was young. And so my father took me there and we wandered around and, and sure enough there were chunks of dinosaur bones laying around. I picked up one and it, I have it right here beside me right now. As an aside, is it just me or is that Heath Ledger's Joker character speaking back at us there? His voice is very similar to Heath Ledger's portrayal of the Joker. I, I know it's an not, aside. I did not make that connection. Listen to the next clip. The other thing that it struck me about fossils and dinosaur bones is that given the fact that when dinosaurs, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is correct, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, uh, it was Pangaea, wasn't it? It wasn't, the continents were not broken up like mm. they are today. And yet America has a disproportionate number of fossils and dinosaur bones compared to everywhere else i think that also, seems unfair i think that has a lot to do with just where they're where people are looking for them yeah i think there have been some important finds in china as well um, but yeah the most of the ones you hear about are from north america but i wonder if that's because it's where people are looking mm, the most mm. perhaps and eight-year-old jack then decides to start his collection right there apparently he labeled it 104a he had no idea what that meant, but he was trying to be scientific even then as an eight-year-old. Uh, and he said his very, his very best discovery, of course, he said his graduate students, but when oh. it came to fossils, he said it was a clutch of dinosaur eggs that had embryonic skeletons inside them. Whoa. And these were the first dinosaur embryos ever found. So even at the time, he said he knew it was an extraordinary discovery, but he had to play it down because he had a TV crew. You know the show 2020? Yeah. 2020 was kind of following around as he's there finding these first dinosaur embryos ever. And he had to play it down because he wanted to be the first one to be able to publish the research in a noted journal, you know, in a science or nature. And he said if 2020 had reported and published it, 
he wouldn't be able to then be the first one to kind of publish that news. So, if that were now and he was a YouTuber, he'd be like, oh my God, oh my God, guys, you got to come <laughs> over here. Come over here, guys, 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 guys. We got embryos, we got embryos. Oh my God. Whereas he's like, that Jack Horner, Jack Horner's like, okay, keep this dumb, right? Don't let them, don't let those cameras come over here. He's thinking of a, of a, a proper scientific journal. Today, it's all about dancing in front of a camera. I think you have a career in this. Well, he did know it was an extraordinary discovery, but he um, said his his feeling was that of patient excitement. Yeah, I like Because I was like, you know, you've been searching for these you know, these fossils, these bones for ages. It takes it's so long in between finds, and he's um, when you find them, I would have thought you'd be exuberant. But he said no, patient excitement because it still has time to go back to the lab, figure out exactly what you've got. Um, and I asked him, once you have skeletons or fossils, have you ever wondered this? How do you take something that's just a bone structure or just a fossil and from that recreate what we know now to be the image of dinosaurs as we would see in, let's say, a Jurassic Park? If you just see a human skeleton, it is hard to imagine what the human looks like. But by studying the bones, you can see where the muscles attach. And by comparing the animals that are closely related... In the case of dinosaurs, we know that crocodilians and birds are their closest relatives that are alive. And so by studying the bone, you can actually figure out where the muscles would go. And then, you know, you can, on a computer or even on a model, you you can sort of lay up the muscles. And once you have the muscles on a skeleton, you pretty much have the outline of the body. And so from there, you just... You put a skin texture on, and as it turns out, we actually find skin impression of dinosaurs sometimes. So we even know what the skin texture looks like. And nowadays, we're even starting to learn about some of the colors they're finding. We're actually finding some uh, fossil melatonin. So the information is all there. Now, the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park are wrong. I mean... In 91, and so when we were working on that movie, we didn't really know too much. We didn't, you know, we, we knew about the skin textures and things like that. And we were pretty sure that even at that time that velociraptors should have had feathers. But in the movie, they weren't, you know, computer technology wasn't up to it and didn't have the capability of uh, feathering the dinosaur. And besides that, Steven Spielberg didn't think feathered dinosaurs would. Feathered dinosaurs don't. Sesame Street. Yeah, exactly. Can you imagine that if those velociraptors in that movie had feathers? It totally changes. Because you think reptilian, you think serpent-like, or as he said, crocodilian. You don't think birds are just kind of fluffy and sort of they're not as menacing. Yeah, kind of sweet. Mm. Something kind of sweet about them. I mean, they're really not, but yeah, kind of evil. But (laughs) (laughs) even owls, as we found out recently. Well, it's hard, I think, to think about dinosaurs differently from how we grew up imagining them. And Jack made a point to say, you know, even this thing about feathered dinosaurs dancing like birds, when he gives these talks, he said sixth grade boys really don't like to hear it. He do- they don't want to hear that these kind of imaginary historic creatures that were so grand are actually sort of feathered more, more akin to birds than than, you know, yeah. boys would like why to hear. Why don't we want to hear that, though? That's interesting. Because mm. surely, why have we been conditioned? Surely the, the young mind can be open to anything. But we've been conditioned, as you say, conditioned to believe that these dinosaurs roamed the earth and that they were these vicious... I mean, Steven Spielberg's got an awful lot to answer for. <laughs> it's what he has. 
Well, I don't think Jurassic Park was the start of people's... Well, for a lot of people it was, certainly our era. I mean, I remember having dinosaur books, but it wasn't until Jurassic Park came along, because when you think about it, Jurassic Park was the first movie yeah. that really did an incredible job. I mean, you said it, you watched it, what, for the first time two weeks ago? Yeah, just very recently. In fact, before the, the night before this interview with Jack Horner. And uh, yeah, it really held up really well in terms of the animatronics and the yeah, dinosaurs that they worked with. Has. So the book comes out, right? Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. And Jack says he's dyslexic. He doesn't really read, but his friends tell him about the book. So he still doesn't read it. He's not interested in reading the book but he did say he went back and just checked that the character that his friend said oh hey listen you know you're in this book right so he goes back and checks that the character doesn't get eaten because that's all (laughs) he cares about really and pretty soon after he gets a call from Steven Spielberg to ask if he's going to consult on the film so obviously we wanted to know what is it like working with Steven Spielberg and Jack said Steven already had an idea of what he wanted to make and this was a fictional project so there was only so much influence he could have when it came to you know, making the dinosaurs accurate. Obviously, I didn't get the color in, I didn't get the feathers in, but the raptors. But one day, we were, if you remember the kitchen scene, when the dinosaur, when the raptor come into the kitchen, um, Stephen wanted the velociraptor to open the door and come in and, and stick out a forked tongue like a snake. And I said, no, 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 you can't do that. And he said, well, I, I really would like to do that. And I said, no, you absolutely cannot do that because dinosaurs didn't have forked tongues. They just, you know, and it would give the wrong impression. I mean, dinosaurs were warm-blooded animals. Forked tongue belongs to a, you know, a cold-blooded animal. We don't want them. We don't want to give the wrong impression. And, and so he conceded and took that out. And in its place, Coming to the door of the kitchen, the dinosaur looks kind of looks in the window and it snorts and it fogs up the window. And only a warm-blooded animal can do that. Oh, that's interesting. It's but it's such a small that's little fight to have on a movie set of. But if you think about it, if he <clears throat> had given him the forked tongue, that would have led to misinformation Absolutely. amongst so many kids who were watching that for the first time and would have form their impressions of dinosaurs based on that. But I'm thinking more the the actual eye when you see it and... The, it's a great image. It's, it's a great ama- scene in the film. It's that, an amazing that scene. That's more up powerful. The window That's is more powerful. I remember it very viscerally. It's amazing. Tongue. Yeah, it is. It's an incredible scene in that movie. Within his control, within his power, he tried to steer Steven Spielberg in the right direction, tried to help him imagine what they would look like as well before putting them on actors to kind of be able to move about. And he consulted on all of the movies. I asked him which one was his favorite. Well, you know, the, the first one obviously was a lot of fun. I and mean, I was, you know, I was seated right next to Steven Spielberg and and had a lot of conversations with him and, and saw how he made a film. And, you know, he would ask me, what do you think about that shot? And I would think, wow, that was really cool. And he'd say, no, that was awful. And then we'd shoot some more and shoot some more. And then he'd say, and then when he got the one he really liked, I, you could see it was a, a lot better. But you could see how a director that wasn't as good as Spielberg, you could see how he could still make a pretty good movie using some of those shots that he used. So... It was an education, just watching. But, you know, I told him many times while we were sitting there that I wouldn't trade my job for his job or anyone else making a movie because it was too boring. I mean, it just, you know, you do the same thing over and over and over again to get the right shots. You know, it's, 
Somebody might think that we do the same thing over and over when we're digging dinosaurs, but, you know, it seems really different to me. So Jack Horner basically thinks Steven Spielberg's job is boring. <laughs> That's a big would. takeaway from that. And when you're a man as distinguished as Jack, when you travel the world as he does, digging up dinosaur fossils and eggs, I can totally understand that. Yeah. It's not it's not his jam. His jam is finding these Yeah, and he probably had if he if Steven Spielberg had the audacity to try and kind of redraw dinosaurs to just to an audience's own to how he wanted them to be, then Jack would probably Jack is a master of his trade. He's <laughs> like, No, you can't do that. They had feathers. No, I don't want to do that. They're not scary. <laughs> you know, you can't just recreate history like that. This is a man who used a mechanical shark, for goodness sake. <laughs> that being said, Jack was actually very gracious about the whole thing. He said, You know, it was fiction. You have to make it interesting. He totally understood why. He said, It's not a documentary. If it's a documentary, it'd be a different story. But because it was fiction, he totally understood the liberties that Steven Spielberg wanted to take. And I guess he even agreed with them to some extent. Now, let's talk about the premise of <laughs> Jurassic Park, which of course comes from the book by Michael Crichton. Dinosaur DNA through blood caught in a fossilized mosquito trapped in amber. Yes. How ludicrous does this sound to you? Not. They, they, they make a good fist of it in the movie yeah, of convincing they you do. that one of the most brilliant little premises of any film yeah. ever yeah. is what I think it is. Well, the thing is, I did ask Jack, was there ever a point at which people thought this might be possible? Um, back then, yes, there was. And that's what Michael Crichton was. Uh, picking up on there there was a lot of controversy as to whether whether or not the dna lasted that long and one at the time 1993 uh, when the movie came out one of my graduate students mary schweitzer uh, she and i actually got a grant a national science foundation grant to try to locate dna in a dinosaur bone a tyrannosaurus rex but we were not able to. And the people that were looking into amber reported DNA being found, but then it was later discovered that it, it wasn't actually from the, wasn't fossil. It was contamination. And so uh, what we've learned over the years really is that no one's found any. Let's put it that way. Recently, however, Mary Schweitzer and another former doctoral student Alita Bayuel found an indication. They did a stain for DNA and discovered some sign that some tiny pieces might be there. But no one has ever confirmed it. No one has ever confirmed ancient DNA in any fossil organism. So we don't know if that if it is possible. But back in 1993, we didn't know. So we were everyone was investigating that. So in that regard, then, Stephen was just playing. It was the perfect time to release yeah. Jurassic Park in that regard. It was legitimate in the sense that researchers were actually investigating if something like that was possible. Could we locate and identify dinosaur DNA somehow? And, you know, you heard Jack say there that, no, we haven't. It's unclear if this is something that could ever happen. But, you know, people are still looking into it in some regard. Now, that's one aspect of it. First of all, getting the dinosaur DNA seems to be quite unlikely. But again, in theory, people thought it might be possible for a period of time. If we even had the DNA, let's say we could find it, okay? 
what could you do with that DNA? If you had that DNA, could you actually then create somehow a dinosaur from that? Turns out it's not that simple. All we'd have to do is is figure out a way to put that DNA in a in another cell. The the problem that so we can clone things now, but we need a living cell. And of course we don't have any living cells of dinosaurs, but the extinct dinosaurs, so even if we had their DNA, we would still need a cell to put it in. And, you know, whose cell would we use? And and would that make a difference? You know, so even if we had DNA, we, we you know, we have lots of DNA around. We can't, we've never made a, an animal from just straight DNA without using a cell. Even with it, we wouldn't really know how to do that. Reverse engineering is a different thing. This project I've been working on for some time, trying to find uh, atavistic genes and turn them back on and, and attempt to reverse engineer a dinosaur. That's a totally different thing. That's starting with a bird that you know is a descendant of dinosaurs and trying to work backwards. Come on then, Sons, layman's terms, please. And you heard him there refer to what he started, a project of creating the Chicanosaurus. And I know you, you raised an eyebrow when he said atavistic genes. Don't worry. He's going to explain that in full in terms of what that essentially means. But what he's saying is, okay, if we had the dinosaur DNA, you'd need a living dinosaur cell in order to then try to do something that's kind of a clone of a dinosaur. Since we don't have that, first of all, we don't have the dinosaur DNA either. That kind of seems like a wash, that plan. But what if we work backwards? We do know that all birds have a common ancestor. Those are dinosaurs. So you could pick any bird, he said. For him, he said he uses chickens because they're essentially the easiest to access. And work backwards in a sense. Work with the chicken and try to figure out what genes have changed through evolution to make them a chicken. Try to undo that a little bit. Atavistic genes are genes that that are ancestral. In other words, if you can imagine, you know, Children, human children, are occasionally born with with a few extra vertebrae in their tail. So they, you know, we have a tailbone, but but sometimes children are born with a few extra vertebrae that makes a longer tail, and that that is an atavistic character. That is a characteristic that is left over from our ancestors who had longer tails, and so. Atavistic genes are genes that have actually been turned off during the course of evolution. If we can find those and turn them back on, then we can resurrect a characteristic that has been lost during the course of evolution. So I was interested in, in since dinosaurs gave rise to birds, I was interested in looking looking for all of the atavistic genes that dinosaurs may have had that that were lost during the evolution of dinosaurs to birds. You know, we've identified some of those atavistic genes. Uh, teeth, for example. Having teeth is actually an atavistic gene. You can turn that on and you actually can produce a, a bird with elementary teeth. The shape of the skull uh, is another atavistic gene. Um, you know, when we look at a bird, it's got a, a very distinctive face with a with a big, you know, beak on it. 
And a dinosaur doesn't have that, and yet that uh, alteration from a velociraptor-like head to a bird-like head is controlled by a gene or a couple of genes, and those can be turned back on, and you actually can change the the shape of, of a bird's head to look more like a dinosaur head. So imagine that, right? So you've got a chicken. Now give it a different shape of head that looks a little bit more like a velociraptor. Another atavistic genie said hands and wings. Mm. So you could kind of undo the wings gene and have the little hands with the three fingers that dinosaurs had. Um, and there are sort of different traits that you can do. You lost us about five minutes ago, but... Atavistic gene. <laughs> Atavistic gene is just flawed me. Okay, so imagine what he was trying to say there is as you evolve from another species, yeah. there are certain hangovers from that. So all of a sudden those genes are turned off, but they still exist. Right, okay. So the gene, for example, for a chicken to have a velociraptor-shaped head is still in the chicken. It's just that that gene is inactive. So what he's saying is let's turn that gene on and see what happens. And once you identify a number of those different traits that you can then turn on all at once. How do you go about turning a gene on? Uh, that's a specific thing that I don't know Ooh, the answer to in no terms getting... of the scientific no nature we're... of how you turn a gene on and off. But, uh, you know, if the gene is there, if you have the raw material to work with, right. you could activate it. Okay. And he's actually been doing very serious research for years now about the idea of creating a Chicanosaurus. So that's working with a chicken and then essentially taking its genetic makeup and working backwards, looking at some of those genes that have been turned off that used to be turned on when chickens were dinosaurs. So he's been trying to figure out how do we reverse some of those specific traits? And he said there's a lot of labs that have identified certain genes like this that, as, as I mentioned, is sort of a hangover from an evolutionary period that you could potentially turn back on. So there's a lot of research and experimentation happening. But what does that mean exactly? Are we going to be able to hatch a chicken dinosaur? But nobody's going to hatch anything. I mean, they, you know, they they switch these genes and then they just look to see what's growing and, and then they terminate the organism long, long, long before it hatches. Um, you know, this is, we're not in the business of making monsters or anything like that or, or you know, mutations. We're, we're looking, you know, for what it would take to make a dinosaur. And so, and so you know, we have the capability of changing the face and, and giving it teeth and changing the arms to, you know, the, the wings to arms. But we're not creating organisms that look like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so you wouldn't want to do that at any point. This is more about genetically understanding how you can create something exactly. like a dinosaur without actually creating the, the um, species or the organism itself. Exactly. Right. Unless... Unless we ever got to a point where we thought we had all of the characteristics, then it would be worth a try, yes. Oh, he's went back he's not, No, wait, he's not kidding anyone. He is completely in the business of making <laughs> monsters, and he would definitely do it if he could That's... fix a couple of, you know, just a couple of overhanging quandaries. It's, it's the way he to... started off saying we're not in the business of making monsters, but then at the end he goes, well, unless we figured out every piece yeah. of the puzzle, then yeah, okay, maybe we should. Yeah, it's one yeah. way to make us all vegans or vegetarians. <laughs> Next year, Jack Horner unveils the Chickenosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, if he can figure out all the pieces, then you never know. Maybe that's something that he thinks is worth 
while doing. But of course, I had to ask him, is this responsible? That's a, a question that, that somebody else needs to ask. Science, you know, is about trying to figure out what we can discover. And then, you know, politicians and whomever else is going to have to figure out whether we should or not, right? I mean, you know, when, when you think about alterations of plants or animals, we do it all the time. I mean, a bulldog is a genetically altered wolf, and nobody said, oh, we shouldn't probably do that, right? And yet, I don't think we should have done that because a, a bulldog is is a weirdly altered dog, a weirdly altered wolf. I mean, it. I, I think if you were going to make an organism like that right now, if you just, if you did it quickly rather than slowly through breeding, of which they did, I think people would people would have a real real problem with it. He's absolutely on the money there. I mean, you wouldn't look at a bulldog and go, yeah, you and the wolf are related. You'd never do that. I did yeah. not think I would end speaking to the world's most famous paleontologist talking about wolves and bulldogs. <laughs> I will be honest with that, but he's absolutely but right. But you get his says. point there. If, if he took this chicken and slowly, well, he can't in this case breed it into a dinosaur, but if mm. he could and it happened gradually, <laughs> yeah. then nobody would notice is his point. Yeah. But because with something like this, it would happen quite o- instantaneously. Although, <laughs> wolf to bulldog, chicken to dinosaur. <laughs> There's two different, very different leaps there. <laughs> Thank you for listening, and if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate, and give us a review. This podcast was presented by Chris McCarty, Sonal Rupani, and Robbie Greenfield, and produced by Tom Paul Smith. We hope you join us next time on The Big Interview.